I'm excited about this book. I, I, honestly, I have been waiting uh, to open up the book of Galatians. As I talked last week in our introduction to the book of Galatians, how important this book is. I put it right alongside Romans as some of Paul's most important and influential works, not just for the time that he was living in, but in uh, you know, the times of the church throughout history, the Reformation, and even in our own day. The message of Galatians is so important as it relates to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we saw in our introduction last week, the issue that Paul is dealing with is you have these, these churches in Galatia and these believers, these Gentile believers that had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they had come by grace through faith and were preached the cross of Jesus Christ. And then you had some, some what we call Judaizers, those that had come out of the Jewish faith that had a history of keeping the law and the commandments and, and circumcision and certain feast days and certain uh, things you can't eat or, or some of these legalistic laws that they had under the old covenant. And they came into these churches in Galatia and began to sway and to teach that in order to truly be a Christian, you can have Jesus. They weren't denying Jesus. They said, you can have Jesus. But if you truly want to be the people of God and share in the promises that God made to his people Israel, then you must be circumcised like a good Jew. And you must begin to keep uh, the law and to keep the feast days and, and to begin to bring them under all of these old covenant requirements. Requirements that as Paul was preaching, that Christ had freed them from those requirements. And he didn't shut the door on people, but Jesus opened the door wide for people to come in through faith and to be a part of what God was doing through Jesus Christ. So Paul is a little bit upset because of these, what he calls agitators, are coming in and throwing the Galatians into confusion. So as we saw last week, this is kind of the outline of Galatians that we saw, the overview of Galatians. We saw that Paul defends his apostleship, and you had this on your paper uh, last time, but Paul defends his apostleship, then he kind of gives an introduction to his argument, and then in his argument itself for the letter, he's giving three major issues, and the issues are faith versus law, that justification doesn't come by keeping law, but justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he shows us the difference between freedom and bondage. That as long as they were following the law, they were under bondage. Why? Because no one could keep the law. Because the law condemned us. Because no matter how hard we tried, the law reveals to us that we are sinners in need of help. So the law brings us in bondage because we can't keep it and we're always condemned by it. But then he says when Jesus comes, he brings us into freedom and he frees us from the bondage, making us righteous, giving us the ability to live out the spirit of the law. So he says, now that you've been set free, don't go back under bondage. And then the third major view is spirit versus flesh. 
He says, as long as you have law, the flesh is going to be aroused because it was, we have a sinful nature. And, you know, it's, it's our inherent sinful nature. When you tell somebody, don't touch the cookie jar, those cookies start to look better than ever. And what's the first thing they want to do when you tell them not to do something? Well, they want to go and do it. Why? Because the flesh is weak. And that's what the law did. It said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and it gave us a desire to do what the flesh desired. And the only way to overcome the flesh was not more laws. It was to be filled and to live and to walk in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in us produces in us the ability to do what we could never do under the law. I quoted last week Titus. Titus says that the grace of God has appeared to all people, teaching us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously and soberly in this present and evil world. So the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the freedom of God, the faith of God allows us to live in the Spirit and gives us the ability to say no to the things of the flesh. So that's kind of the heart of the letter. We're going to break it down and get into the text of Galatians today. So if you will turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, and if you have a paper, the paper is the same thing that is page 80 in your, um, in your book. And we're going to just kind of take it section by section and just read a couple of verses in each chapter and in each section of the book of Galatians so we can see in the Scripture all of these themes as they are played out. So what we have in the first five verses of chapter 1, we have the salutation. Now, we talked about epistles. And most epistles begins with, you know, who wrote it, kind of like how we write, uh, you know, letters today. They, they have a certain format we follow. Well, the letters in the New Testament times, it usually begins with the reader, uh, I mean, with the writer, and then who the recipients were. And there's usually a greeting, and sometimes Paul adds a prayer of thanksgiving for them, and then he goes into the body of the letter. Well, Paul begins here with a salutation in verses number 1 through 5. And we'll notice a couple of things in the first part of this letter. First of all, Galatians, I believe, it is the only letter that Paul writes where he does not give thanks for that church. He doesn't go through a lot of formalities. He keeps it short on the salutation. It does not include a prayer. It does not include a thanksgiving. He goes right in because this is something that he is passionate about. So in the very first verse of Galatians, we read this, Paul, an apostle. Now that's not an unusual greeting. He oftentimes referred to himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here he adds something. And in Galatians 1.1, he adds this, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, from the dead. Because one of the arguments against Paul was they were questioning his legitimacy as an apostle, claiming he, you know, he didn't have the right to be an apostle. So the first thing he says is, I'm an apostle, but not by man. I'm an apostle by God. I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm an apostle 
not sent from man, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ. And then we see, he says in verse number four, he talks about Jesus and he says, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. So he's starting out really with the gospel. So the two things that he's defending, he's defending himself and his apostleship, and he's defending the gospel. So what does he start out with? He starts out with Paul, an apostle, not sent by man, but sent by God. And then he says about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. His apostleship and the gospel. So that's why he takes up in the salutation, setting the tone for the rest of the letter. The next section that we have is verses 6 through 9, and this is a curse on the agitators. As we see on our paper, he says, you may find this paragraph abrupt and for good reason, since this is Paul's only letter to a church that does not include a thanksgiving and prayer. He goes right into what he's wanting to say. Instead, he assumes the role of a prophet, pronouncing a double curse on those who are derailing the Gentile Galatians with a foreign gospel and on any others who would do so. So let's see where this is in the scripture. So let's look in verse number six of chapter one. Galatians chapter one, verse number six. Paul says, I am astonished. Now this is right after his greeting. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you at any other gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So a couple of things he's showing them here. Number one, he's showing that there are some that are giving in to this false gospel. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the grace of God in which you were called into. And then he says, there are some people throwing you into confusion, perverting the gospel of Christ for Paul, because Paul was, was a Jew. You couldn't get any more Jewish than Paul was. Born a Hebrew, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, excelled above his peers, higher than them all. You couldn't get anybody else that was more Jewish than the apostle Paul when it came to his religion. He said, I was zealous of the traditions of my father, but yet he had a radical encounter with God. And Jesus came into his life and changed his life. And he'll go on to say in just a moment that he went and he spent time with God, years with God, just him and God alone, as the Holy Spirit was teaching him this gospel. So to Paul, the gospel means everything. It means everything. And probably the reason he defends himself is not because he's prideful in himself. He's defending himself because of the gospel that he preaches. That if you can take away Paul's legitimacy, you take away the legitimacy of the gospel of grace that Paul teaches. And he teaches something so radical 
that he was in danger of death everywhere that he went from his own countrymen because of the radical gospel of God's grace and that righteousness does not come by keeping the law or by any self-righteous works that we can do or by our religious standing or the traditions of our fathers or elders or the family or the nation that we were born in. Salvation and righteousness only comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that he shed freely for all of us. And that's what Paul is defending. So he says in verse number 10 of Galatians 1, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? He says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he defends, he pronounces this double curse on anyone that would come and preach any other gospel than the gospel of grace which was revealed. The next, the next section that we see here is his defense of the gospel, and it deals with him and his relationship with the church and the apostles at Jerusalem. So the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came down, and you had all the apostles there. You had Peter and James and John and all the other apostles, and they kind of you know, ran the show because they were the apostles and the disciples of Jesus Christ. And, but Paul took a different route and we're going to see his different route here, which he defends his relationship with the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. So he says here on the paper, it is significant to note that Paul begins with the, with the defense of his gospel by defending his apostleship. Which remember, his apostleship is a direct commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Thus, after a transitional sentence, verse 10, against those who imply that by not insisting on circumcision, Paul's merely trying to please people, Paul begins by asserting that his gospel is not of human origins, but came to him by direct revelation. So we see in his, we see this. And we see three things here that's presented. We're just going to look over these. So he says on, on your paper, the defense of this um, assertion then proceeds by way of three-part chronological narrative. Number one, that Paul's gospel and his apostleship were absolutely independent of Jerusalem independent of Jerusalem. So when God called him, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He went and spent time with God. For he says in verse number 11 of Galatians 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin. Neither did I receive it of man, nor was I taught it, but, re but rather I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. So he shows that he received his gospel from Jesus. Number two, his gospel, however, does not disagree with what the other apostles are teaching. Does not disagree. So he says here, let's read in chapter 1, verse number 15. Galatians 1, 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That means when Paul was called by God. My immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. After three years. And then uh, to get acquainted with Cephas or Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days. 
I saw no other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. And then he goes on to talk. And if you look in chapter 2 and verse 1, look in Galatians 2. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. So he went back up to Jerusalem and he told them, all the leaders in Jerusalem, about this gospel. Now, if you look down in chapter 2 and verse number 9, look in Galatians 2 and verse number 9. Galatians 2 and verse 9. He says, James, Cephas or Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given unto me. So Paul is saying, number one, when I got called, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I went and I met with God. He and I got in the desert of Arabia and he taught me this gospel by the Holy Spirit. He says, but then I went to Jerusalem and I met with the apostles. He says, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship approving my gospel. I got approval by them. And then the next scene that we see happens in chapter 2, verse number 11. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, When Paul, or when Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with other Gentiles. Peter, being a Jew, used to eat with Gentiles. That means he did not keep the food laws of the Jewish dietary laws. He ate freely with the Gentiles. He says, but when the people from Jerusalem, from James, arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. In verse 14, he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live as a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter was being a hypocrite. Peter was being a hypocrite. When he was alone with the Gentiles, he lived like a Gentile. But then when the Jews came, he took their side because they were trying to make the Gentiles live as Jews. And Paul called him out in front of everybody as a hypocrite. So he says that Jerusalem and the person of Peter, that he broke faith with this agreement and the gospel. And then beginning in verse number 15, going through verse 22, Paul sets forth the theological propositions. And I love this passage right here in verse 15. That sets it up for the rest of the book. Notice what it says here in Galatians 2.15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Verse 19 of Galatians 2. 
For through the law, I, am, I died to the law, that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body or in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What a powerful statement. And we see here on the screen, he says three things about the theological propositions. He says, number one, that righteousness does not come by observing the law. You cannot be made righteous in the sight of God by observing the law. For by the law, no flesh will be justified. He says, number two, true righteousness is, from, is by faith in Christ Jesus. True faith, true righteousness is by faith in Christ Jesus. And number three, that the indwelling Christ is the effective agent for living out the new righteousness. Otherwise, Christ died for nothing. And this is his theological statement that he expounds on through the next three chapters or four chapters. That righteousness doesn't come by the law, it comes by faith in Christ and the Spirit achieves for us this form of righteousness. So if we look on our paper here, the, near the bottom of our paper, it says chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, verse 7. This is his second defense of the gospel. And this time it has to do with Christ and the law. He says, as you move now to Paul's theological defense... Note specifically that it begins and ends with the appeal to the reader's experience in the Spirit. The rest of this uh, first argument is based on Scripture. The heart of it shows Christ's role in support of the first two propositions. Having brought the time of the law to an end, he's ushered in the time of faith. Thus he argues, and here's the major arguments in this. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. That Abraham's true heirs are those who, like Abraham, are now included, or now including the Gentiles, have faith in Jesus Christ. That the law is not based on faith, but on doing, which means doing the whole law, which, also, which is also a curse because it excludes people from living by faith. Thus Christ died so as to remove the curse so that the Gentiles might be included by faith and through the Spirit. So as we look back in our scriptures in chapter 3, notice how chapter 3 starts in Galatians. Notice how chapter 3 starts in Galatians. Verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's his question. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Here's the question Paul asked. Did you receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by what you heard? And the answer was, they received the Spirit by faith. They received the Holy Spirit by faith. So then he asked this question in verse 3 of chapter 3. Are you so foolish Having, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish or be made complete or perfect by means of the flesh? If your flesh wasn't, if your works wasn't good enough to get you in, guess what? Your works aren't going to be good enough to keep you in. He says, you came in by faith, 
and you stay in by faith and you finish by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, so now you begun in the Spirit and didn't God give you the Spirit? Yes. Didn't God save you? Yes. Wasn't your faith good enough for God to work in your life? Yes. Well, why are you leaving that to go back into the law and try to be justified by the flesh? You know, and I think sometimes, and I know for people I've spoke with and in my own experience to some degree, we kind of say, well, we get saved by faith because, you know, when we come to Jesus, you know, everything we've done, you know, God kind of forgives that and starts us over, but now God's keeping score. And now that we are saved, now he gives us a list of everything we have to do. So he forgave us in our past when we were sinners. And now he gives us a scorecard. Okay, now I've got to do this all the time. I have to do this. I have to do this. I can't do this. I can't go here. I can't do that. And now God's keeping score by our works. And Paul says that's not how it works. Paul says you receive the Spirit by faith. So now how, why do you think you're going to be made perfect or complete by what you do in the flesh. So in verse number 7, he says this, in Galatians 3, 7, Understand then that those who, are, who have faith are the children of Abraham. Now we're getting, now he's, he's really getting ready to turn the apple cart over now. He's really getting ready. Jesus, I believe it was in John 8, Jesus is having a discussion with the the Pharisees, and he calls the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And they look at him and they say, no, we are, Abraham is our father. We are automatically in the covenant because we are children of Abraham. So Jesus, you can't tell us nothing because we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Pharisees came up. And he looks at the Pharisees, he says, and don't say within yourselves, well, we're okay, we don't need to repent because we're children of Abraham. He said, for God can make these stones and these rocks into children of Abraham. He tells Nicodemus, who was born a Jew, who was a teacher of the law. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to be born again. Because your birth as a physical child and seed of Abraham is not an automatic guarantee. In the old covenant it was. You were born into a Jewish family. Males were circumcised the eighth day. You were in the covenant. Bam. It's not how it works. When Christ came on the scene, they had to be born again. It was not about their natural birth. And the promises of God, even though given... Now, this, this is really something that messed me up a long time ago and changed my view of a lot of stuff. But Paul says, you are not a Jew who is one outwardly by physical circumcision. A true Jew is one who's been circumcised in his heart, and has come by faith. So in the, in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you see the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. They are the people of God. It's the nation of Israel. God's chosen special people. And God made his promises through 
them. That's what we find in the Old Testament. That's what their whole religion and life and family and everything was based on. But when you come over to the New Covenant, things begin to change, and there is a change there. Some still hold to that Old Testament dearly. And what they do is they interpret the New Testament in the light of the Old. What we're supposed to do is interpret the Old Testament by the light of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it is revealed that the true children of Abraham, the true Israel, is not those of a natural birth. It's those by faith who have a spiritual birth. And the promises that God made to Abraham wasn't just to a natural seed. It wasn't to a natural seed. It was to a seed that would be by faith. And that through faith, Gentiles are children of Abraham. And through faith, Gentiles are partakers of the promises that God made to Abraham and to his, his offspring, his seed. And that changes everything. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he made of two, Jew and Gentile, completely separate, that he brings them by faith into Christ and makes them one new man. That there is no separation. That true Israel, true children of Abraham, are those who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And they tried to kill Paul for it. So he says in chapter 3, verse 7, Understand then, that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham that through you all nations would be blessed. So those who rely on faith are blessed among with Abraham, the man of faith. All those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Here's the key, verse 16. The promises that God made to Abraham and his seed. It says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, when you read the Old Testament in Genesis, Abraham's seed was his physical, natural offspring, his physical children. They inherited the promises. They were blessed because of Abraham. But here's what you find out when you get to Galatians. And this is what Jesus taught Paul when he was alone in the wilderness. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Ah, but here's the catch. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people. But it says, and to your seed, meaning one person. So the promises God made to Abraham were to Abraham and his seed, one person. And Paul says that seed is Christ. 
He says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant that God established with Abraham. It does not do away with that promise. So this is a game changer. So I will say this boldly because this is taught in evangelical Christianity, sometimes very predominantly. There are not two separate peoples of God that have two separate covenants with God on the planet today. Some people teach you have natural Israel and they're God's people and they have a covenant with God. Then you have the church and they are God's people and they have a different covenant with God. And one relates to God by one covenant and one relates to God by the other covenant. In fact, one prominent preacher on television, I heard him say one time, and Lisa doesn't let me watch preaching on television anymore because some people throw their, their remote controls at the TV during sporting events. I throw it at the TV during preaching on television. So Lisa forbids me from watching preaching. But he said one time, he said, Israel is married to God through the old covenant, and the church is married to Jesus through the new covenant. And there are two peoples of gods on the earth today with two separate covenants. That is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches there is only and has always only been one covenant people of God. In the Old Testament, it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and this nation of, of Israel. Then these same Israelites came into the New Testament. And on the day of Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit down to those who believed in Jesus. And it was those who by faith believed in Jesus that received the promise that God made long ago to Abraham. And they are the true people of God. And we talked about it in Romans. Remember in Romans, Paul saw one olive tree, one covenant olive tree. He says, unbelieving branches were or taken out. Those are those in Israel who did not receive the gospel. They were taken out of being the covenant people. And he said, then there was a wild olive tree who was grafted in. Those were the believing Gentiles. But there is only one covenant people of God. He made of two, one, breaking down the wall of division between them. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but inwardly. And um, that's the truth of what Paul is teaching here. And there's a lot of implications uh, for that, but that is undeniably what the Scripture teaches. There is not two. And then I'm, I'm going to push it even further because we get a Christmas break after this, and I don't push it even further. There are those that believe that God's going to go back to the Old Covenant and start doing what the Old Covenant did and having sacrifices and all of that. You can read Hebrews and tell me, if you think that's going to happen or not. So there's a lot to digest here. And they tried to kill Paul for it. But he's saying, God made a promise with Abraham to bless him and his seed. And that seed is Christ. And that promise was made before the law was given. So he asked the question, does the law cancel out the promise made to Abraham? And he says, no. He asked the question in chapter 3, verse 19, then why was the law given at all? He says it was added because of transgressions until the seed would come. The law was given until Jesus would come. 
in Galatians 3, verse 21, it says, is the law opposed to the promises of God? He says, no. The law isn't opposed to the promise of God, but the law could never give you the promise of God. He says, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law, but it couldn't. The law did not give life. The law brought death. It says, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith, might be given to those who believe. Who believe. So he says, because of this, verse 23, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed, and that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ... In the seed, you are all the children of God through faith. And for all who are baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. Now, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. And I don't know how he can make it any more clear than that. Then he, um, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit um, into chapter 4. And I'm going to go down to verse number 21 of chapter 4. I'm going to skip just a little bit and go down to chapter 4, verse 21. Basically, in the middle part of chapter 4, he says, now that you've been set free, why do you turn back and go into the weak elements of the law? Now he's going to use an illustration. And he goes back again to Father Abraham. Well, we know that God made a promise to Abraham, right? That he would have a child in his old age, him and Sarah. And that child would be a child of promise. But we also know that before Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham tried to take actions into his own hands, right? There was a handmaid by the name of Hagar. And he said, well, let me just have a child with Hagar, for she can bear children, Sarah can't. And then maybe God will count that child as the promised child. So Hagar has a son named Ishmael. Well, Ishmael wasn't the promised son. He he was the son that Abraham decided, I'm going to try to make the promise happen myself. So Ishmael was born, but he was rejected because he wasn't the promised son. Then Sarah had a child, Isaac. That was the promised son that God promised. Well, Isaac was born and he's the promised son. So now Ishmael, when they are growing up, Ishmael is now jealous and starts persecuting Isaac. And God tells Abraham that he has to throw out Hagar and Ishmael because he was the child not born after a promise, but after the flesh. So for all these years... The Jews identified with being a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the natural Jews, we are the children of the promise. We are Abraham's seed. We are Isaac's seed because of where we were born. But now what's happened is you've got those natural-born Jews who are persecuting the church, the Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians. And what Paul does here, again, enrages the Jewish people. For he uses Abraham, and he uses Hagar and Sarah, 
and he uses Isaac and Ishmael as an example. But he turns the tables upside down. Let's listen to what he says. Galatians 4.21 Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. The slave woman was Hagar, the free woman was Sarah. He says, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but the son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. He says, these things are being taken figuratively. The woman or these women represent two covenants. Can you guess what those covenants are? The old covenant and the new covenant. These things are taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. Now, quiz, is, would Mount Sinai represent the old covenant or the new covenant? The old covenant. For the law was given to Mount Sinai. He says, for one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. He says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Wow. He says, this slave woman who had a child by the flesh is representative of the old covenant, Israel, born to be slaves to Mount Sinai. And he said, this represents the present day earthly Jerusalem who has rejected Jesus and chooses to live by the law. He says, they are Ishmael. He says, because she is in slavery with her children. He says, but the Jerusalem that is from above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come not to Mount Sinai, but you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, those of spirit, those of faith. He says in verse 28, Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are the children of promise. Now he's writing this to the Galatians. You are the children of promise. And at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the Spirit. It is now the same. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not the children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Paul turns it all upside down. And these are historic changing words and totally turns everything up and down of how people have related to God through covenant and he makes no bones about it and um, these scriptures changed a lot of views that I was taught and I was trying to put all these together and I was like I'm hearing one thing but yet the scripture is totally saying something and there's no way to get around it this is what Paul is teaching 
So he's teaching, we are not of the slave woman. So don't go back into the law. Don't go back to the law. Don't forsake Christ thinking now you can be righteous in your own works. For you are saved by grace through faith and you are kept by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now in chapters 5 and 6, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because it's very pretty straightforward. But he set up, you are not of the slave woman, you're of the free woman. So now in chapter 5, he's saying, here's how to live as children of the free woman. Here's how you live free. Here's how you live free. You live free through the Holy Spirit. You live free through the Spirit. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He says, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Christ will be of no value. And then if we go down to verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Here's the old grace but. Because people say, if you give people too much grace, they are going to go crazy. If you tell people that they are free, that they don't have to keep the law, that they don't have to keep all this legalism, then they're just going to run crazy and they're going to go out and sin all they want to. And you're going to give, if you give people grace, you're going to give them a license to sin. And my response is, number one, you don't know what grace truly is, if that's your opinion of it. And number two, people are going to sin whether or not I give them a license to sin or not. Some of the greatest sin has come out of the most legalistic churches. Just because you preach legalism and rules doesn't mean people are going to stop sinning. And I can sit here and name names of corruption among pastors and churches that were the most strict legalistic churches that there were. So giving people grace is not giving them a license to sin. Giving people grace is giving them a license to live out the faith and the righteousness that they are in Jesus Christ by living by the Spirit. By living by the Spirit. So he says, you are free, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, but rather use it to serve one another in love. Verse 16 of chapter 5, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's what we've gotten backwards a lot in church. Because we teach people, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Then you'll be good enough to walk in the Spirit. That we have to crucify ourselves daily. We have to die to sin daily. The Bible says we were crucified with Christ and we've died once to sin with Christ. So that's not a scripture in the Bible, first of all. Secondly, those that have crucified the flesh, have crucified it with Christ, live in the Spirit. So he says, walk in the Spirit. So the cure for not living in the flesh is to live in the Spirit. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? Paul says in, Galat in Romans, those who live after Spirit have their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Those who live after the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. If we're constantly dwelling and thinking about the things of the flesh, that's how we'll live. But if we're constantly dwelling and, and thinking about the things of the Spirit and the Word of God and the things of God, we'll live after the Spirit. He says, so if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live in the Spirit, let us keep step or walk in the Spirit. So he says the key to this righteousness is living in the Spirit. I want to close out in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is kind of a conclusion chapter. In verse number 12 of chapter 6, it says, Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. He says the only reason they do this is to avoid per- being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. He says even though you're Jews, you don't, none of them keep the law. He says yet they want you to be circumcised. That they can boast about your circumcision in your flesh. Paul says may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast, not about my works, my accomplishments, my law keeping, the things I do right. May I only boast in the cross of Christ through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. And you are a new creation in Christ. And he ends in verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. Then he says this, to the Israel of God. To the Israel of God. The Israel of God are those who follow this rule. What's this rule? They're a new creation. Coming to Christ by faith, not by law. Not being set free from the bondage of religious legalism and law-keeping, but set free from that, not going back into bondage. So this letter meant everything to the early church because it was setting the tone of, number one, how are you made right with God? How does righteousness come? And number two, who are the true people of God and who are the true children of Abraham? And the answer is, the true people of God And the true children of Abraham are those who come to Jesus Christ by faith. 